Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton. We're so excited to be back for another season of the podcast. When Adam and I started this podcast in pre-pandemic times, our hope was to be a resource for students. So we appreciate all that you've done to help us do not only that, but to reach listeners who share that that love and enjoyment for sports, business, and, and the intersection of those things. The good news is that during that hiatus, we planned out a great slate of content that starts today with Adam's interview with Tony Pontoro. Tony is a CEO of Pontoro Management Group, where he consults in marketing for business and new sports ventures. He's a regular guest on Lou Dobbs Tonight, Fox Business, Bloomberg News, CNBC, and countless other media outlets. Tony is also a managing partner in the Kersner Pontoro Group, a company that produces and promotes projects at the crossroads of sports and entertainment. Tony spent 26 years at Anheuser-Busch, serving as a vice president of global media, sports, and entertainment marketing for 17 of those years. He also served on the Anheuser-Busch Strategy Committee, representing the top 15 executives of the company. Tony was recently named the Director of Industry Relations for the NYU Tisch Sports Institute for Sports Management, Media, and Business. He is also an NYU adjunct professor. We're so excited to be back, and there cannot be a better way to start the season. So we hope you all enjoy Adam's interview with Tony Pontoro. Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Grossman. With me today is Tony Pontoro. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Well, looking forward to diving into uh, your career, uh, which started with a long um, uh, history, and we talked about this a little bit before we got on the podcast at uh, uh, Bush and Anheuser-Busch. So um, as we start with all our guests, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got to the point in your career where you are today? I started, I uh, actually had a degree in economics at Villanova back in the, in the mid-70s, and but I had a few interviews with banks and some financial sort of institutions, and I always kiddingly say, those weren't my people. You know, I, I, I knew I liked business, I knew I liked sports, I knew I liked entertainment, uh, and how could I use what I thought was business skills, but bring it to a topic or, a, you know, a, a a business that that I would enjoy being, and I would enjoy being around the people. That sort of took me to be an NBC page. So I actually worked the first Saturday Night Lives at, at 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York and gave tours of the studio. And I kiddingly always say, and no disrespect to legitimate master's degrees, but giving those tours, which were sometimes five times a day, I always said it was my master's because presentation and business is such an important part of what you do, right? You know, convincing people not only with your facts, but how you present it and how you come across was so important. So if you had stage fright, you certainly learned to get rid of that stage, uh, stage fright doing those tours. That led me to BBDO advertising. And so um, I worked on the media side of three different agencies in my 20s in New York City, you know, thinking I was, you know, in show business. And, and back then, 
it really was, you know, it, it, it sounds silly and it sounds like, you know, I walked to school with no shoes, but there was really just three television networks. You know, it was ABC, CBS, uh, and NBC. Fox didn't come on until 1985. Cable was going to start developing in the late 70s, satellite television. Um, but I got to interface with salespeople at television networks and represent clients, represent clients like Campbell Soup, Coca-Cola, and eventually Anheuser-Busch. As a 30-year-old, uh, Anheuser-Busch, this was 1982, just to sort of put a little history to it. Anheuser-Busch had maybe 21 market share and had three brands, Budweiser, Michelob, and Bush. And Bush was really a regional beer. I think it was only in about 30 states. And August Bush III, who had just taken over from his father as CEO, wanted to basically go win the beer war. And uh, started to create a marketing department and a media and sports marketing department and felt that he needed some young people from New York City who would understand that mentality a little bit, right? And as Bush was headquartered in St. Louis, the Midwest. And so he wanted, you know, some people that understood television networks and sports leagues, et cetera. Not that I was that experienced at that point, but I did have, you know, seven years in New York. Uh, so I was hired to be director of media at Anheuser-Busch, and that was very early stages. And and I always feel, a lot of people say, you know, later on, that must have been sort of overwhelming. And the only reason I think it wasn't totally overwhelming is when I started, we had very few assets. You know, we had maybe a $200 million budget and a uh, million dollar budget, and we had I think a few sports marketing assets, we, we you know, Miller uh, Brewing had a bunch of the television assets, the broadcast television assets. And so our job was over time to basically go get the assets, marketing assets that would uh, generate beer sales, be, you know, assets that were passionate to the beer consumer uh, and beat our competition to the punch. Uh, and, and then that led to our CEO saying, uh, he wanted to trust the people, not that he didn't trust third party agencies, but he wanted to basically look you in the eye and say, okay, I pay you, you're an Anheuser-Busch employee. So I'd rather give you the assets of dollars to go, you know, buy our marketing, uh, communication assets to the consumer. And so I can hold you accountable. And that led to us taking in all of our media and sports marketing in-house in, the, in 1991 under a company called Bush Media, which was basically Anheuser-Busch. It was just a subsidiary within the marketing department. And I ran that department for basically the next 17 years. And when we got bought by InBev in the end of 2008, uh, we had 50 market share and 50 plus brands. So I'll, I'll sort of stop there, but that was sort of my career ride through the Anheuser-Busch days and how I sort of got to Anheuser-Busch. Yeah, and I think there, uh, there's a couple of things there um, that we want to talk about a little more depth. First, um, and it, I'm glad you started out both uh, in the advertising and, and your page experience. Uh, that's a common theme we hear from uh, folks that we have on the podcast is a career outside of sports kind of help them prepare for a career inside in sports. 
you mentioned how important it was presentation skills, particularly as a page. But what did you take away from your experiences um, that you think were the most applicable, if, if if and beyond kind of the presentation skills that you learned as a page? Well, I'm a big believer uh, in sort of the human skill of business. And I always I've I've taught myself in the past and it's to me, it's about building your brand. I would say the Tony Pontero, Adam Grossman brands are they may be different, but they're no different in being established as Coca-Cola, Budweiser or Apple. You know, what, do people want to spend time with it? Do they think it's honest and trustworthy, credible? Uh, you know, do you get your money's worth? You know, and so I think as a as a young person, you're trying to build your brand and everything you do is starting to build a foundation and what those attributes are. And so that human interaction which is, is, isn't is always taught or certainly isn't always emphasized, I think is very important. So when you're working as a young person as a page and you're interfacing with the public and you're interfacing with 30 different young people that are fellow pages all doing the same thing and you're working, you know, the first Saturday Night Lives where it was a little hectic and crazy, you're just taking that all in. And I always encourage and stress that you're building a foundation of experience about, you know, teamwork and cooperation and communication that no matter what profession you ultimately go in and you may end up in three professions, you know, over a 40 or 50 year career, those basics will last a long, a lifetime, you know, and I learned going back after I left AB and started calling on people for various projects um, it was it was your how you dealt in business. So the human factor was so important because if you were the eight hundred pound gorilla spending at the end seven hundred million dollars in assets and just being a bully, once you didn't have that budget, you know you can only imagine you know calling Roger Goodell, the commissioner, and saying, Tony, yeah, you didn't really treat us too well. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Versus. When I did Lombardi, I produced a play about Vince Lombardi. And and what Roger Goodell said is, we know you'll use the trademark, you know, respectfully. So I was able to negotiate for very little money that the NFL Shield and the Lombardi Trophy to use in promotion for the play we did about Vince Lombardi. But But I was trusted with those assets beyond a little bit of money because of how I always say we did business and how we understood as a beer company, how to respect the trademark and where people felt comfortable. So you're built, you, you, you don't realize you're building your, your reputation continually, no matter what you do. And that will play out in a lifetime of business. I want to, there's some other things I want to get to about the AB, but I do want to, since you mentioned Lombardi and obviously you're uh, being a production, I think it goes to a point that you were just talking about in terms of human relationships, which is, um, you know, you were arguably that is maybe adversarial is too strong, but obviously you're a company who's looking to, you know, you said up to $700 million. You're obviously um, thinking about it from an efficiency perspective, the NFL on the other side is, you know, obviously trying to seek to maximize revenue generation. And this is consistent with all your property and rights holder partners. So, you know, how did you navigate that 
dynamic or what did you learn, particularly through your career when you're in a sales, I mean, that's not even a sales, but like in a relationship where people are selling to you and you want to maintain these good relationships. How did you, did that evolve over time? Or is that like you're saying something you learned from the beginning that you just kind of kept applying or, so I think it's a very important skill is that people often see negotiation as a, you know, a zero sum game where it sounds like you're not approaching it in that way. Yeah, it started with, there was a mantra at the company that was started by Adolphus Bush, uh, one of the founders, I think, well, the probably founder of the company, which was making friends as our business. And it really permeated throughout the company. So in other words, even someone you're negotiating with, it's they're not the enemy. They're a friend who has a business proposition, has business plan themselves. And so the key is to sort of find no, no one, sh- both sides should be winners. You know, it sounds a little corny, but really it is the truth. Um, number one. Number two, you'd be surprised, certainly back, call it in the mid to late 80s, how people would come with no facts or data, right? So so let's take, we at one point had 90% of every professional team in this country, their local deals um, on an exclusive beer sponsorship basis. And Let's just take the Los Angeles Lakers. So they would come in and say, well, we want a million dollars for the beer category for TV, radio, signage. And I would go, well, how did you get to a million dollars? And it would be, well, you know, we want to raise $5 million. We're going to try to get five big sponsors to each give us a million. That was their strategy. That was their lives. So we would go back and say, well, that's nice. And if that was, you know, a fairy tale world, maybe that would work. But now we're going to do our homework, and here's the value that we put on, you know, and we'd always do this respectfully, on the TV, radio, signage, and trademark, and we get to 750 you know, just using this these numbers somewhat arbitrarily. And that would start a real negotiation. And then we would make the point of saying, you know, it's not that we can't spend the million, but we're not going to give you a million for $750,000 value. And then... If you if you go back, you know, and, and particularly for the students as well, and you Google old sports games, you don't see NI signage, you don't see scores table signage, you don't see signs on the outfield walls in baseball. And what started to happen is, well, that left wheel that left field sign is empty, right? The whole the whole outfield wall is empty. What if we put a Bud Light sign there? Now that could be worth another two fifty, and now we got your you got your million dollars, but we got more value. So it was sort of this give and take, but also coming to them with with data and our rationale and strategy, which in many cases would you know put them in a tough position because they didn't have the same data to come back to us. With I think over time the industry got educated across the process. And it was also important to use smarts about it. So like, I remember the Yankees one year, uh, we had given them probably two to $3 million for Yankee stadium and everything. And they said, yeah, but now can we sell to like uh, Smirnoff a sign in Yankee stadium? So why would we give you three? I tell you what, what what's Smirnoff going to give you? Are they going to give us a hundred thousand dollars? I said, why don't we do this? I'll give you the $100,000 for that sign, and you go try to sell Smirnoff to $3 million. 
right? Which they which Smirnoff didn't have. So you want to use your smarts and do it in a in a respectful way, but you you needed to teach. You know, it's sort of an interesting word to use, but teach the industry back then that you're not going to get us to be the big whale, but then nip at our our toes to get every little dive, you know, and so we'll just back off. Um, so what I always heard later after I left Anheuser-Busch and talked to people is that we were tough but fair. And that's and so you so you want to be respected. They knew they had to come doing their homework, you know, eventually, because they didn't want to be just staring at us and say, oh, we just want a million dollars. That would be nice. Um, and then it, it actually helped build the look of the industry because we started adding assets that were essentially unsold. We, we, we called it painting the canvas. That it was an empty canvas if you use a sort of an artistic painting thing. And then eventually we started painting in the canvas that became a fabric of the game, you know? So, and then particularly if you were, which we never gave value to, which people sometimes are surprised, but if all of a sudden, you know, I remember there was a, uh, one of the playoffs, it may have been 06 when the Red Sox, I believe if I get my years right, were in the world series for, I think for the first time. And, um, there was a sports illustrated, uh, fold out that had Fenway park and big poppy, hitting a home run and you would see this big Budweiser sign. It was like, if you, and I remember our CEO said that was free to us, right? It just happened to be where our sign was. And he said, well, what if we had bought that as an advertisement? Right. And I said, it probably was whatever it was, $350,000 back then. And those were the things that would bring a grin to his face because it was just doing smart work, but getting the original the residual effect of the extra print time, air time, um, on and on. But I think to summarize that, that your question there, it was it, being friends, being real partners, having the give and take, and not having to squeeze the last dime out of every deal because you would get it back. You know, if it was baseball and it was a six-month season, you would need some favor along the line that you would need to ask for. And that would clearly get you back whatever that, you know, CPM efficiency, however you measured it was maybe you gave a little bit more, but you would get it back fivefold over a season. Yeah, I, I can't let you go without asking about the actual nuts and bolts uh, of the measurement. Uh, obviously, that's uh, as students know, and, and uh, the audience of this podcast knows that's clearly my area of expertise uh, or one of them. How did how did you guys think about it? Did you and could you a explain what a CPM is for people who maybe aren't as familiar? And b how did you guys think about actually calculating value internally before as part of those negotiations? Yeah, well, you know, a CPM is certainly a cost per thousand, which was pretty simple of uh, audience. You know, what's the you know recorded audience generally from Nielsen, and for what you pay for it, and so you would basically create benchmarks. Uh, on a national basis, and then we would create our own benchmarks. So if 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 a, and on a local basis, a lot of it was a cost per point. So if you were getting a three rating, and you paid you know twenty five thousand dollars for for a local spot, you know what was that cost per point? Uh, and then 
And so that was what the market, say, in Detroit was worth if you're buying prime time or late night. And then you put we would put some premium on that, you know, to justify the exclusivity that we had and then the sports. One of the things that we did, we really created was on stadium signage, there was no no measurement. The only measurements that were out there were the old outdoor highway sort of measurements, which was, you know, how many cars went by your sign. But now you had a stadium and you had sort of a fixed place and so we would do sort of a CPM per square foot, you know, so we would have, we still do, okay, there's 3 million people and it's costing us X, but then we, we added another metric, which was, well, did we have a hundred square feet of signage or do we have a thousand square feet of signage, you know, a much different proposition. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, a couple of years ago, maybe five or six years ago, my old company talked about, you know, holding companies accountable in their sponsorships and, and some, you know, ratings, reviews and stuff. Well, we were doing that 20 years ago or 30 years ago because when we did a deal with a team or with a television broadcaster, we would say, um, okay, uh, you're gar- you're gonna, your attendance last year was $2 million. You're going to, you know, you're going to guarantee $2 million. You know, because all of a sudden, if you're one six and we're paying an efficiency for two, two million, then we're going to need something in return. Um, it's very difficult, and I and I'm sure it's it's gotten better. And I know a lot of the work you probably have done over the years, which is how do you justify paying a league twenty five million dollars for the official beer or soft drink or a car? And, and hand over money to get the trademark rights. You know, how do you ultimately measure that in the marketplace? Um, and sometimes, although it's it certainly gotten much more d- data and metric driven, the other sort of thing about that, and I don't know if you believe in this, Adam, or not, is sort of the human observation side. I always think a human observation is also data that you put into the mix maybe not so literatively, but, but figuratively, which is um, we knew Dale Earnhardt Jr. when we first signed him to be our NASCAR driver was going to be very popular when like the states of Washington, Oregon, Utah wanted his point of sale, right? So all of a sudden it told us, okay, if, if those wholesalers way up in the Pacific Northwest want to have a stand-up of Dale Earnhardt Jr., and put a Budweiser display around him. That told us that people in the market touching the consumer every day saw that as a connecting dot, you know, saw that as a passion point. And so our wholesalers, in many respects, became part of our research team just in the sense of how they use point of sale material. Um, And sometimes you would leverage that the other way. So like the Arizona Cardinals were not great you know, call it in the early 2000s, I think they had terrible records. And we learned that our wholesaler wasn't using any of the point of sale in the market. Um, and they were using the Phoenix Suns and they were using the Diamondbacks that they weren't using the Cardinals. But our deal was up. And I said, well, if you're not going to use, you know, the marks, then there's no reason for us to waste the money, Right. Uh, we're not going to buy it defensively in case more cores come in. Because if you don't think it's worth anything, then why do you care if they have it? You know, and 
the Phoenix wholesaler to this day is probably 65 market share in Phoenix. And so again, that would start a conversation, which is okay, we do want it, it will start using it. But it would also tell you it wasn't, you know, they thought they could sell beer with other things. So so it, it, again, it was a, it was a it was a form of measurement that was uh, just a little more human observation than than any metric was telling you. Yeah, and, you know that's something we did think about uh, in my work also is you mixing the qualitative with quantitative and how do you balance all of that to get to the right outcome, particularly in terms of value creation, the ways uh, many of the way, similar ways that you're describing. Um, I do want to talk about. Um, you know, as you're thinking about efficiency and value, you know, obviously, clearly, that was a you know, media strategy, partnership strategy, advertising strategy was a big way that you went from a 21% market share when you started to an over 50% market share for uh, and the growth of different brands. So, um, I do, I do want to talk about how did you, you know, you and you later have an entrepreneurial kind of growth mindset in some of the work you were doing later. Is that something that you knew was going to happen when you joined AB? How did that kind of play out? How were you able to build an organization, particularly that um, a brand that became so reliant on uh, or became at least partially reliant on media sponsorship spend and using sports to grow and increase market share? Yeah, I, I didn't know. I mean, it, it, and I came at the end of 82, but Light wasn't even introduced till 85. And so it was about setting out on the strategy. So the strategy was to get the right sports and media assets to help grow our business. You know, that was, and, and Miller Beer had many of the national assets tied up exclusively. So take, you know, work your magic over time to wrestle those away, like a Monday night football and other things like that. Um, we literally would go and knock on doors of teams because there was so our strategy was Miller has it locked up nationally. We'll go knock on doors and lock it up locally. And we literally went around this country and went to teams who said, we want to, we want, we were sort of the buyer and the seller at the same time. We want to be your team, New York Yankees. We want to be your beer. Let's work out a deal. And what does that mean? And 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 that and as I said, through the '90s or through the late '80s to the mid '90s, we locked up most of those teams. Um, so you didn't know, but you would start to see the results. You know, I mean, you would see that things worked. You you, you saw that the, you know. I I'm a firm believer that lo- the sports is local, it's tribal. Um, people are most passionate about their local teams. Um, and then the national is sort of this nice umbrella that 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 is on top of it. And for many cities that don't have their own local team, although they the, the local teams, you know, I was asking someone from Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa, who was his football team, and they said, "Well, you know, believe it or not, it could be Kansas City, it could be Packers, it could be Minnesota. You know, it's like and it, and it could be all the all the above for different people in that community, but." You started to see the, you know, each month, each year, you know, the step process and 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 uh, and, and how it progressed and was successful, and so you had a sense it was working. And the biggest thing I think, which is a good lesson of business, is that 
we were empowered by our CEO to go do that work. He understood there's a lot of companies today, in all due respect, that that a lot of their activity, too many chefs in the kitchen, uh, the procurement department has too many holds, you know, and he understood that buying corn and rice and aluminum and glass was barley, hops, was not the same as buying Super Bowl, Monday Night Football, and, you know, the Olympics. And he knew it was a different kind of style of negotiation. So his brilliance, among many things, was to say, I'm going to empower this group to do the work. You know, I, you lose my trust, you're gone. His whole thing was, I've got to trust you. If I don't trust you, uh, you can find another place to work. And uh, And so anyone who's working at any environment you couldn't ask for a better situation, which is hire me, let me do the job. If I don't do the job, I probably know, and I should be man or woman enough to say, you don't have to fire me. I'll go with it. I'll go on my own. But you want to be able to, to, to be given that chance to succeed and to use your brain power and your experience. Uh, and that was the brilliance of our company, as well as a lot of people say, Anheuser-Busch was the first major sponsor of ESPN. And 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 it was a five-year deal, a million dollars a year, two thirties a half hour for total beer exclusivity. And a lot of people say, well, that must have been a no-brainer. And it's like, no. In 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 19, when I went in 1982, it we it it was ESPN had maybe 10 or 15 million homes. They'd had very little assets. Uh, the naysayers were like, who needs 24 seven sports? I mean, it was, you know, Bill Rasmussen, who basically founded ESPN. I mean, it, it wasn't an automatic. Um, and so being allowed to take risks uh, and if the risk fails, it fails. But that's also an important element of, you know, going after things that we were the first uh like placement sponsor and one of the first sponsors in Survivor, you know, which isn't sports, but in a way it's like sports. But Mark Burnett came to our offices. He was this sort of entrepreneurial, you know, kind of filmmaker, you know, and uh, said, I want to do the show Survivor and you can have Bud Light in the jungle, which we thought was a little bizarre, but he said, no, it can work. But it was like taking that risk, you know, and, and, uh, and being allowed to do that. We did the first, uh, XFL with Vince McMahon, which became a failure, but at least we did it, and it really became a failure because that's one of the things. So try to you know give three lessons in one, but if the if both if the USFL when it first started in the mid eighties, no, it was actually uh, let me take that back. It was like eighty eighty one or so, and the XFL and their original strategy had held to their 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 objectives, they may have been successful, but USFL got crazy with cost and a guy named Donald Trump with the New York team got crazy with Herschel Walker and, and messed up the whole economics of the game and it failed. And then the XFL, Vince McMahon, which was going to be fun and we thought entertaining, particularly to, to males 21 to 34, got way over his skis like by game three and it became just a joke. So... 
people don't understand that the NFL is what is it, 125 years old or whatever it is, and the NBA's been around a long time, and and so you're not going to become them overnight. It's like one step at a time. Build your foundation, and then hopefully you can look back in 50 years and say, look what we did. You're not going to do it in 12 and 18 months. That's also a good thing for uh, students and your career is I've seen a lot of people parachute out of a a good job or a company early on because it's not moving as fast as as you want. And and, And this is easy for me to say now because I was impatient in my 20s, but you look back and say, wait a minute. I've worked seven years. Let's say you start out of college, you're 22, 23. I've I've worked seven years, which is an amazing experience foundation, and I'm still only 30, you know, and and I've got 35 more years plus to work. So it's about building the foundation and growing on it. Yeah, and there's a lot there, and I think uh, potentially we'll have you back on as a guest to kind of delve into some of that in more detail. But I do want to talk about, you know, your decision to leave AB and then, you know, you mentioned taking risk, obviously starting your own venture and moving into some of, you know, into a producer, but how and when did you decide it was a, you know, good time to leave, particularly as the sales process with InBev came into place and how did you decide that, that, you know, pursuing your own kind of opportunities was the next path forward for you? Yeah, it became clear when, you know, InBev is really 3G capital. 3G capital is private equity, private equities, are good. They're financial motivated. They're not necessarily marketers. Um, they tend to look at at uh, cost cutting and uh, how to just create, you know, bottom line. I mean, I'm, I'm generalizing, but that's that's that I think that's a pretty good depiction of most private equity. Um, it was clear to me, and if, and, and if, first of all, for many of us, they didn't. They didn't have a choice. They they didn't want anyone really around from the old company, which is very very short sighted. I think if you got to some of them today, basically their CEO and some others, not their current CEO, they would realize they maybe got a little uh, um, aggressive in not wanting you know current Anheuser-Busch people. I was given the opportunity to stay, but under a different structure. They wanted to go to sort of a heavy brand management, the brands are in charge of their brands and what have you. And we were structured with two very clear uh, divisions. One was the media and sports marketing. And then our head of brand management was really our creative director. And so he could be flexible and do the creative that made sense and not be tied to he could go to the Tony and Adam agency and had a good idea for Bud Light and do the deal. Because we were doing all the the business side of the business over here. And they wanted to go more traditional Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble sort of setup. And there's no way you could be empowered for, you know, certainly the last 17 years I was there and now be told, I'm going to have 10 people in the room telling me what I should do that I had just done the last 17 years, just being very candid. So it was clear that I wasn't going to uh, be suited in that organization. And what I realized again, as I mentioned earlier, is we were so given such empowerment and we're sort of entrepreneurial in a 50 at the time billion dollar company. There's no way you could put the straight jacket on. You just, you wouldn't be happy. Um, and so it was, it was time to go. 
um, and uh, and and my counterparts all left. So there wasn't there was maybe one person that that was left behind. And and the thing when they bought Miller Coors, I heard later they they talked to some of the employees about maybe we should learn from you for you know a year or two and then transition out. And I think it's important for all of us. We all want to think we know everything and whether you're 25 or whether you're 55, you're still always learning. And even if you take a little time to learn from someone who had been in the job a long time, uh, you know, it would make sense. Uh, And if you dismiss everybody, it's a pretty arrogant move. And they subsequently have lost 10 market share points in the 15 years since they bought the company. Certainly they've had the Bud Light issue, which has even made that worse. And now they're trying to get their sea legs and get back to some sense of growth. And they've learned it's not that easy. This country, you know, it's, you know, it's so different in every region you go. So to think, you, you know, selling beer is selling beer. It's just not the case. And so anyway, uh, so it was it was it was smart for me to leave, which I did. I went back to New York where I had started and I realized that I was entrepreneurial. And that led me to say, why don't I do some things on my own? Take the risk. And the person from William Morris at the time taught me a pretty good lesson. We're all nervous at different times of our career. And it's like, okay, I used to say my name, Tony Pontero, Anheuser-Busch, like it was one name. And now it's like, okay, now it just has to be Tony Pontero. You know, I don't have the big company or the budget. And this person said, you know, no, you need to understand that over that period of time, you built your own brand. Uh, And so you'll be just fine. Decide what you want to do. And then that's when I, you know, I like content. I like, you know, running something. And that's when I said, well, maybe I'll be a, 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 there was a little learning in there, but I mean, produce some sports shows. And because sports has great storytelling and can be great content and no one's really done sports on Broadway. I remember I went to see, just to digress for a second, went to see Steve Sable, who's now sadly passed away of NFL films. His father really started it and he continued to run it to get footage of Lombardi. And we were in his office, I brought our playwright and he said, you know, he said, damn, I thought I did everything on Lombardi. He said, I never thought about doing a a, a play, whether Broadway or not. Um, But he couldn't be more gracious. And, you know, and then he would tell some of the stories that aren't on film or what you want to hear, which helped the playwright put in some things in the script. So that's what led to being entrepreneurial and taking the risk trusting yourself and people I, I have friends to this day that say how'd you know you could produce on broadway i said i really didn't but you build confidence we all build confidence of being successful in what we did and the principles are all the same i used to say okay just think of it you're going to market a brand called bud light what does that take pr marketing packaging trial research everything okay i'm going to do a play called lombardi same thing, you know, it's, it's, it's a marketing, uh, you know, discipline that's really no different. 
You just don't have the eight hundred million dollar budget. <laughs> Maybe that's one small difference, I guess. They have. Um, you know, I do want to make sure we cover. You know, you obviously started your own venture. You're doing a lot of entrepreneurial things now, but there was a brief. I don't know if that brief, but there was. You went back to Turnkey um, in a more you know an established company. Right? How did you decide that that was a good path for you after you kind of went out on your own and sort of. Um, when it to go back to a certain degree into a larger enterprise. Yeah. You know, I'd spent five years producing sports plays and then uh, it was time to take a little hiatus, I guess. And, or there wasn't an idea that was, that was bursting at the seams and uh, Len Perna who ran turnkey had been a friend over the years and really wanted to build out a consulting company, uh, beyond the executive search. Uh, and his observation was, you know, he was putting a lot of people in positions around the country in sports teams and stuff like that. But there could be, you know, other work that could bring to advertisers or and, and, and some of these people he was putting in position. So the idea was to not be an ex- a, a executive recruiter, but actually help build out a consulting firm. And so that was that was the that was the objective. We eventually, um, he sold that piece of the business probably within 12 months to a company called MarketCast because he also had a, what's called Turnkey Intelligence, I believe, which which was a research arm. And so they, they, he sold that piece of the company. And uh, quite frankly, they didn't want, they didn't, re- they wanted to stay research data driven. They didn't really want to do a consulting arm. So that so that was fine, uh, and so that so we all mutually agreed to move on. So it was it was it was sort of a a reach out uh, with Len to to maybe help build something. Help you learn that um, when you've been in the business a long time, um, and, and I think this is an observation as well as advice to some people is we have sort of a you know, uh, a proud sort of industry, you know, and, and I did some executive coaching for a while. And, and I remember someone who was, you know, at a high level at a team got razzed by his friends saying, why are you getting coaching? And what, what that person should have said is, I want to continue to learn. If I can learn this much from Tony, I'm, I'm going to be, strong enough to say that's okay. Uh, but we have a little bit in the industry is everyone's afraid to show any weakness. So they're not quick to want to be executive. You know, Adam Silver to this day, I think gets executive coached by someone. He has someone, we all need someone to talk to and bounce ideas off of as well as you need someone to say, you know, I can consult here and help you look through some things that I've been through that you haven't been through, but it takes people to feel comfortable that giving advice is okay. You know, it's not a form of weakness, it's a form of strength. Um, and so that was that was some of my observation of, even as I did that consulting work, is that um, it, it was not terribly embracing by the industry. Uh, and I talked to other people about it because it's, I think there's an awkwardness to it, you know. Now, if you have research, 
and hardline data and something you can really use to support. That's sort of, it has a face on it and you would articulate this a lot better than I Adam, but, but it's, but it's, it's really the data that's doing the talking, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, I, I went into Hyundai, uh, for something and they had the official car of the NFL and they had their people from Tokyo or Korea, I guess. And, 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 and they weren't using the asset. Well, my instinct was if you're paying the NFL money and you're not using the trademark and doing promotions in all your dealerships, you're sort of wasting the money. <laughs> well, what does that do? That embarrasses the head of marketing. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, and so it's a very delicate thing. So I'm not, not sure how I went off on that tangent, but um, but but I think all of this is, is you want to get more data, more intelligence in the broad sense is a value. I used to tell my students when I taught, it's like experience is I got hit by the locomotive coming down the track many times. I can now see it coming down to hit you, but I can push you off the track. So you're not going to get smashed. Like I did. That's what, it, that's a, you know, sort of a visual of what experience is. you know? Yeah. I think that's where we want to close is one final question, which we ask all of our, yeah, which is along those lines, either as you're seeing this, as you taught or in your career is, you know, we have a lot of uh, our audience are people who are people trying to break into the industry or people who are trying to progress in the industry. You obviously were in senior positions in multiple organizations and built your own company. So if you were looking to hire somebody, what kind of traits would you be looking for? And what kind of traits do you think are successful for people who are pursuing a career in the sports industry as they're looking to either enter or advance in the industry? You know, I always tell particularly young people, that when someone walks into an office, the person on the other side of the desk can almost tell within a minute whether this person is a viable candidate. Because you start with the premise that essentially everyone coming through the room is smart, right? You start with that foundation. They're degreed. They're smart. They have it. The difference maker, in my opinion, which I referenced earlier, is do you have an attitude and a style that people are going to want to work with that you you understand there's no shortcuts you understand that you know if you got to get in early and and get things started or work late um I, I hate hearing this attitude of people saying well if i have to come into the office i'll quit and find another job that's like you might as well be talking some foreign language to me i don't get that I don't know why why anyone would want that person, you know, just being very candid. So to me, it's 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 someone that's totally embracing and understand that it's work, it's teamwork, it's honesty, you know, it's trust, and that there's they're not owed anything. Everything is to be earned, you know. Um, and I, I did interview one person once, and and, and so. Why do you want this job? And it was like, well, you know, my father knows you. And da, da, da. It's like, well, that's that's sort of the wrong answer. And and to me, it's not it's not about um, oh, I always wanted to be in sports, and and I think it'd be great. Okay, what what, what you really want want to hear is you know, you know, I want to work on a team. I want to help meet objectives. I want to help grow this business. 
and and particularly someone that's come into the room. I used to have headhunters, executive recruiters call me and had no idea what my job was at Anheuser-Busch was but trying to convince me to go to another job. I said, do you even know what I do? Well, Adam gave me your name and, you know, as a recommendation. So it was laziness, right? It's like you didn't even do your homework to know what I did. And you're asking me if I'm interested in a job that's three layers down from what I currently do. So it's like, so it's that, you know, it's just that work preparation. And it was a great line. I'll I'll end with this and let you ask another question. But, and, you know, it's just somewhat old fashioned, but Nick Saban talked about when he and uh, Parcells were assistant coaches at the Browns together. And obviously they both went on to do some amazing things. He said, we only had one sign in the locker room. We didn't have all this, you know, rah-rah stuff. It said, just do your job, you know? And, you know, and, and I, and it, it just, you know, we sometimes overcomplicate things and it's just like, you know, and that was Lombardi's thing. Lombardi was like, you know, Lombardi, if you saw him on the sidelines and you see him, he's in his little trench coat, he's got a piece of paper in his hand, and he's got his hat on. He's there's no headset. He said, my job was done in practice. They now know what to do. Now they have to execute just do their job, which is probably where Belichick and Saban, you know, everyone's a disciple of Lombardi. But that's what you, that's what you're trying to pick up in a very short period of time. Yeah, I think it's uh, hard to end on a better spot than Parcells, Lombardi, Belichick. And Saban. So <laughs> appreciate the time, Tony Vartoro. Thanks for being a guest on the Thanks, podcast. Adam. It was a great conversation. Thanks.